questions about Satan, heaven, and loving one another amidst the great mask debate of 2020. This is On Life with Jamie Sinclair, episode 12. So, yo, a, uh, a, a listener sent in a couple of super intriguing questions from her daughter. The questions are, why doesn't God give Satan a chance to apologize? And if we are all dead when Jesus comes back, he won't have anyone to bring to heaven because we'll already be there. Wow, those are really good questions and kind of tricky at first. <clears throat> I love uh, I love the thought process of young children sometimes. They ask ask such novel questions that, that might not even occur to us to ask. So looking at the first question, why doesn't God give Satan a chance to apologize? Um, the short answer is, I don't know for sure. So I don't really have a proper answer to this question, but I have some thinking that might help us as we explore this. And then ultimately some things we do know for sure about God and Satan that would help every one of us, including this young child. So firstly, God doesn't seem to give Satan any sort of opportunity for repentance. That is pretty clear in scripture that his his destruction is certain. Um, kind of right at the get-go, and we see the fall of Adam and Eve, there's a, uh, a prophetic declaration by the Lord about uh, Satan striking or bruising the heel of the offspring of the woman, so Jesus, but the offspring, Jesus, crushing the serpent's head. Um, so why? Uh, you know, maybe it's because of something about Satan himself, or maybe it's because of something about the sin, his rebellion, and his, his uh, oppression of the people that God's trying, that, that were created in the image of God. So it could have to do with the nature of the sinner in this case, or the nature of the sin, and I'm not sure which. Uh, maybe it's about the sin itself, and uh, it's possible that God chose not to give an opportunity for repentance, regardless of how Satan would have responded, because uh, just the the profundity and, and extent and consequence of Satan's sin uh, in such a way that mercy in this case would be unhelpful. Uh, it, it could be because of the potential impacts on others. Maybe it would have been confusing to mankind or unhelp, an unhelpful example to the angels. I don't know. I'm totally like speculating at the moment. That's possible. It, it's, it's also very possible that it has to do with Satan himself. Uh, that there's such a decided rebellion in his heart that God knows Satan would never repent and thus the opportunity would be a pointless exercise. Um, or it's even possible that it's like, what is Satan? Um, maybe Satan was created with the intention of destroying him for the glory of God. Uh, you know, people even debate, uh, it, definitely the, the common take is that Satan is a fallen angel, but the Bible's not really super explicit on this point. Um, let's just say Satan were a fallen angel. Uh, are angels created in the image of God? It, it doesn't seem like they are. And so it could be that God offers us the opportunity for repentance. He's pursued us, but we're pretty unique amongst creation. And maybe rather than saying, why doesn't God give Satan an opportunity to repent? It's more like, why does he give us an opportunity and we've been created in his image. And there's no reason to think that uh, angels or whatever Satan is was created in the image of God. Um, 
There is a passage in Job that seems to imply angels were created very early on in the creation process and were were watching while God created, Uh, but only humans are explicitly created in the image of God. So that was some speculation meanderings on an I don't know answer. What do we know? We know this. Satan is defeated. He was crushed by Jesus's victory over sin and death through Jesus's death and resurrection. We know that Satan will ultimately be destroyed. That's referenced several times in scripture, very clearly in Revelation 20.10. He will be thrown into the pit of fire, it says. Um, And then finally, we know that Satan is out to steal, kill, and destroy. Um, And we should be aware of this reality, but we as believers, children of God, don't need to fear. In fact, in James chapter... Four, I love this simple promise. If we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And so we need to be aware that the enemy's out there. He's out to steal, kill, and destroy. But we need to know that he is defeated. He will ultimately be destroyed. And when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Next question. If we are all dead when Jesus comes back, he won't have anyone to bring to heaven because we will already be there. The short answer to this question is many believers will be dead, you know, for thousands of years now. Uh, there have been men and women who fear the Lord and have passed away. Their eyes have tasted the sleep of death. Uh, but we know from clear biblical references that there will still be believers alive. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is comforting believers who are, are concerned about those who are perishing Uh, not sure what happened to people who died before Jesus' return. And Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the air. And and so there's a a very clear, uh, and there are other passages like that, that show there will be believers on the earth when Jesus returns. Longer answer, keying in on the final phrase of that question, we will already be there. Actually, we won't be. Um, Let me differentiate between our final state and what theologians often refer to as the intermediate state. So right now we're on earth, we're kicking, we're breathing, we're walking around. Uh, Jesus refers, and in John chapter 5, he talks about a resurrection, a resurrection of everybody, the just and the unjust, to judgment, and then the just ultimately to eternal life. John chapter 5, verse 25. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this because the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. And in Revelation chapter 21, when it talks about those who have done the good things, the just, it talks about a resurrection to life. It actually describes what we colloquially just refer to as heaven. It, does, it talks about it as the new heaven and new earth, a, a renewed creation of sorts. 
Let me read just the first few verses of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And, and pause. Uh, if you recall in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? There's this idea of there's a universe that God has created. And here in Revelation 21, it's almost like a renewed universe. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And so what we often just refer to as like in heaven with Jesus forever, it, it's the new heavens and the new earth. And, and we don't, we're not there until after Jesus returns and both the just and the unjust will rise. The, the wicked to a resurrection of condemnation, they'll be thrown into Gehenna, the lake of fire. And the the just or the justified maybe is even a better way of more more specifically saying it. The justified will rise to immortality, to uh, to a new heaven, a new earth, to uh, walking in the presence of God forever. So we will have eternity with Jesus. In First Corinthians chapter fifteen, the apostle the apostle Paul is talking about the resurrection and and us putting on immortality. He describes it like this, verse fifty one. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead, in, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed, with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And, and so we see this, this moment that we, we very clearly see what we'd call the, the final state, but that happens when Jesus returns. Then we will put on immortality. It's when Jesus returns, we will rise to everlasting life. It's when Jesus returns that we will see the the new heavens and the new earth ushered in. Um, When we die right now, we are in what we'd refer to as the intermediate state. Right now, we're walking around, living, breathing, kicking. One day, Jesus will return, and both the the living and the dead will face judgment and go to uh, the second death or the new heavens and the new earth, colloquially heaven. But right now, when we die, <clears throat> that would be the intermediate state between now and between and Jesus's return. And sometimes, uh, colloquially, this is often just referred to as heaven too. Uh, that can be confusing because heaven means a number of things in scripture. And primarily, I think when we say heaven in the context of death, what we mean is with Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth, but that's not the intermediate state. So maybe a more biblical term for the right now intermediate state would be uh, 
paradise. Jesus refers to paradise when talking to the thief on the cross next to him. Um, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And then also there's a reference to Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side in a story that Jesus tells, likely a parable in my opinion, uh, between a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And Lazarus dies and the rich man dies. And it says that Lazarus dies and Jesus said he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, paradise. And he says the rich man also died and was buried and he was tormented in Hades. And it actually describes them being able to see each other and the rich man is calling to, to Abraham to send Lazarus over to, to cool his tongue because he's in ag- agony. And uh, it, it's an interesting story in exchange with an interesting lesson. I'm not sure. It's debatable as to whether it really reflects any sort of reality or if it's just a parable to make a point. My personal take is that's a parable to make a point. Uh, I, I don't see a good reason to think we are going to be in paradise looking across a chasm, seeing people that we walked with here on earth uh, in torment. Um, that doesn't really jive with a lot of other texts and scripture. But right now, I'm not going to try to speak to what the intermediate state is so much as to say when Jesus returns, it's not the case that those who have perished are already in heaven. Um, Again, going back to the question, if we are all dead when Jesus comes back, he won't have anyone to bring to heaven because we will already be there. Short answer, we won't all be dead. There will be believers alive. But furthermore, even all those who are dead aren't already there. They will rise and then those who, the justified who rise, will rise to put on immortality and to eternal life, walking with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. Hopefully that is somewhat helpful. Okay, final question. I'd love to hear you do a podcast on judging whether other people are loving as Christ. And then the the question continues on for a while. Thanks for submitting, Uh, especially regarding wearing a mask. And in this current cultural moment, um, I want to talk about a few things. The first one is this. Uh, Whenever discussing things, whether in agreement or disagreement or, or working through ideas, it's important to exercise the principle of charity. And that means uh, generally seeing those around you, trying to, to read the best version of whatever they're describing. Um, it's easy to hear someone and attribute, attribute to them some sort of um, selfish or ignoble motive But the principle of charity would say, no, what is the best reason for thinking this or doing this? And it's a little bit of a, uh, certainly let's not be naive, but also a love hopes all things. Um, Certainly, if this is a principle for discourse generally, how much more so should we exercise this with fellow believers? Meaning, um, even if a believer thinks something that you different from you or, or does something differently than how you would do it, uh, if, if there's a way to read that as, okay, they're, they're doing it for good reasons, though, um, even if I disagree with what they're doing, uh, that's super important. And I would say uh, those who are major proponents of wearing masks 
tend to do a pretty good job of saying, well, I love the people around me, so I'm going to wear a mask. I'm doing it for grandma or whatever. Uh, I will say those who are mask averse, in my anecdotal experience, um, that crew hasn't always tended to make the case well. But let's now, for the sake of good thought, uh, to good exercise here, let's consider some ways those who are ardently in favor of general generous mask usage and those who are strongly averse to generous mask usage might arrive at those conclusions motivated by love for Jesus and love for the people around them. So, for those ardently in favor of generous mask usage, um, well, firstly, I mean, I, I think we're all familiar with the the prevailing uh, recommendations, health recommendations of the day, uh, masks. If you have COVID-19, when you wear a mask, it reduces the, uh, the amount of like droplets that would get out of your mouth and into somebody else's eyes or mouth or, or something like that. So it reduces potential transmission. Um, and Admittedly, at the moment where I am in St. Lawrence County, New York, the chance of getting COVID-19 is extremely low. It happens. I think we've had about 260 cases in the past five or six months since whenever COVID became a thing. Out of a population of 108,000 people, 260 cases with, I believe, like zero active cases at the moment. I mean, the likelihood that any one person is going to get COVID-19 is extremely low. Uh, furthermore, four persons have perished as a result, uh, which is, again, pretty low risk. But go through this thought exercise with me for a moment. What if you did contract COVID-19? And then what if somebody got sick through you, you transmitted it to them, and they died? Out of love for those around you, wouldn't reducing the likelihood of transmitting a potentially deadly virus uh, with something as simple as wearing a mask, like wouldn't that be just like the the, the logical or rational f- follow-up? Like if you love those people, wear a mask. And and so I'm. By the way, I'm not trying to say that's the case. I'm making the the for those who do wear a mask out of love for those around them. I, I think I can follow that. Um. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would feel so. Uh, so so terribly if I knew that I transmitted a virus to somebody that killed them. That that's really tough and really sad. Uh, furthermore, some believers would say, "Hey, beyond like I mean, because there's there, there's also always a possibility." By the way, <laughs> wait, I wanted to like undermine that rationale, but I, I don't want to do any undermining at the moment. Uh, another thought is this: even if you aren't persuaded by the statistics and like, hey, I should do this to protect the people around me. Uh, I, th- I think I know for a fact some believers say, look, uh, it's not so much about COVID-19 or masks. It's more we're called to submit to government as believers. Part of how we love the Lord and love those around us is by embracing biblical wisdom, even when some of the specific outworkings are far from ideal and not what I'd prefer myself. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, we read, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Enough said. So like, I, I think we can think of a couple of very uh, compelling reasons at first blush 
why somebody might who's just trying to honor the Lord, love God, love the people around them, might be strongly in favor of generous mask usage. Oh, and to finish the thought on submission to government, New York State has a number of policy directives specifically about tons of mask wearing. Okay, what about those who are strongly averse to general mask usage? Um, are there potentially loving God and loving people around me motivations for that? The answer is yes. And this is important because at least what I've seen on like Facebook and people even just posting signs and windows, uh, there seems to be a little bit of almost like a, I wear a mask because I love people. And if you don't wear a mask, you must not love people. And we're going to talk about judging and just stuff in a moment. But, but the point is, uh, someone may decide not to wear a mask and whether they're right or wrong, it would be not exercising the principle of charity to assume their motive. And what we should do is the hard work of, is there a good motive? So if masks are just statistically pointless, like you're more likely to die in a car accident than to contract COVID-19, transmit COVID-19, and then have that person die of COVID-19, which I haven't actually crunched the numbers in my area in St. Lawrence County but it wouldn't surprise me if that is true in St. Lawrence County. We've literally had four COVID-19 deaths over the past six months. We've certainly had at least that many car accident deaths, uh, right? Like it, it just, it seems like that the statistics case for wearing a mask in some places would much more quickly cause you to stop doing things like drive a car. And most of us drive a car and we don't feel like that's unloving towards the people around us. Uh, beyond that though, it's not some, so one is if they're really that pointless, maybe opening people's eyes to thinking well and acting rationally, maybe that is actually loving them best. So that's one thing. Secondly, mask usage itself may be problematic. Um, I've heard people try to talk about some physical health repercussions, um, unless you have some sort of condition. I'm not aware of any real reason to think that wearing a mask is like going to kill you. But I do know this. Socially, wearing a mask like destroys, I shouldn't say destroys, I'm being hyperbolic, but it, it so inhibits healthy communication, a sense of presence and support from each other. We are social beings. We were designed to, to walk with people, to know people, to live life with people. And this distancing and mask usage, usage thing, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that years from now, what we're going to realize in this is that alcohol consumption was up, drug consumption was up, domestic abuse was up, suicidality was up. Uh, like I, There are a lot of problems that mask usage is contributing to. And, and so possibly somebody says, look, I'm all about people not dying from COVID-19, but in my area, nobody's dying from COVID-19. What's killing people here is masks. It's social distancing. It's the fact that uh, we're not able to have healthy human interaction. There's emotional health is significant. That shouldn't be like news to somebody in 21st century America, where we're all pretty aware of issues like depression and domestic abuse and substance abuse and things like that. Uh, so somebody really could, out of a, a love for the Lord and love for the people around them, say, I need to oppose this mask usage because it's actually harmful for my neighbors. Um, what, one more idea is this. In the United States, 
Certainly Christians, just like Christians everywhere, our posture ought to be submit to the government. But in the United States, and I've talked about this a couple of times in the podcast, um, we don't have a king that we submit to. Ultimately, we're submitting to the Constitution, which uh, really requires the participation of citizens, people like us. Um, and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're to pray for those in authority that we might lead quiet lives in all godliness. Well, in the United States, we're part of the answer to our prayers. Like, how, how odd would it be if we prayed something like that? Like, like say you're the person in charge of setting the rules for a Little League baseball like, group. And you're praying that the person who sets the rules does a good job with it. And then you purposefully decide not to spend any time thinking about how to do it. Like, you're like, define, like, is that even a genuine prayer? Like, what's going on? And so if, if we as Americans are really engaged in prayer for our government and prayer for uh, a healthy, free, peaceful society, we should also be using our political means. And some of those means are lobbying and calling representatives. Some of those means are voting, even running for office. But one of those means at times is to stand up, to, to protest, potentially using masks, but maybe even using civil disobedience to say, uh, th- this is encroachment and, and this is hurting our neighbors and our posterity. I'm going to stand up because I love the people around me. Now, again, you, you might be a massive fan of masks. You might be really mask averse. I'm not trying to make a particular case for either right now. What I'm trying to do is say, even if they're maybe wrong, people on both sides could well be doing this out of their love for the Lord and love for the people around them. And it is uh, irrational and uncharitable for us to assume that just because somebody disagrees with us, they are not motivated by love. Furthermore, as believers, this is especially important. In Romans chapter 14, uh, we see a we see a disagreement within the church, uh, particularly on a couple of issues like uh, on the Sabbath. Can you work on the Sabbath? What about Jewish holidays, like or holy days? I should say, is it like appropriate? Do we have to treat some days as special and others as normal, or are all days alike? What What about the food we eat? Can we eat food offered to idols or food that was unclean under the Torah, like like bacon and such? And and so that was a, a debate within the early church. And I remember years ago when I was in my early teens, I I was reading Romans 14 and it was kind of dawning on me what this passage is about. And I was shocked at first because I I just want the answer. Like, who's right, Paul? Should we respect some days as holy or or all days alike? Should we, you know, abstain from unclean foods or does it not matter what we eat? But this is what Paul says. He doesn't try to say who's right. He says, don't judge each other. Don't assume uh, the, the other one's doing something wrong and not really trying to worship God. Romans chapter 14, verse 5. One person judges one day to be more important than another. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it and he gives thanks to God. A few verses later, verse 12. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. If you have $10 in your pocket and 
Uh, you know, it's one afternoon you're walking down the street and you see somebody in need. Uh, giving them the $10 could be a most loving thing to do. But what if you've already made a commitment to helping your neighbor later that evening with uh, their mailbox had like fallen off their house and you're going to help them and you needed those, that $10 to buy some mounting brackets and screws. Um, in that case, barring some sort of specific prompting of the Holy Spirit, giving $10 away now might feel nice in this moment, but that's actually letting someone down that you've committed to helping already. Like that might actually not at all be the loving thing to do. And, and so it's important for us as believers to stir ourselves and stir one another to, to walk in love and, and to, to, to live lives of, of surface, service and generosity. But it is, it is inappropriate for us to judge based on a single like action, whether or not somebody gives away the 10 bucks, whether or not somebody wears a mask in a certain scenario, to, to assume we know whether or not they're walking in love is actually extremely counter-scriptural. It's, it's unloving to make assumptions about somebody. So let's not let's be careful not to assume that we have the corner on knowing what lo- walking in love always looks like. Um, certainly we want to try our best and I would encourage you r- wrestle through and pray w- uh, pray through and 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 get wise counsel on how do we act in many scenarios including how how should you use masks in what context? And I would even say context matters. Uh, I, I think most of us if we were walking into the you know, to a hospital room to, to visit a loved one who is immunocompromised, probably all of us would, you know, scrub up and, and wear a mask, like without even asking, thinking twice. So there are certainly contexts, but I would encourage you do the hard work required for really loving people well around you. And if you and another believer come to different conclusions in a particular scenario, yeah, I mean, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, likely you aren't both right. Maybe you're even both wrong at some level, but what would be very wrong is to assume that you're the loving person and they're not loving. That is not loving. As soon as we start making those kinds of assumptions, I can guarantee you at least one person who's not walking in love, that's the one making that assumption. Um, There's some things that are super clear biblically, Certainly the Bible doesn't directly answer whether or not someone should wear a mask in any specific context. It's not one of those things. Let's challenge each other to walk in love. With it. Let's encourage one another. Let's, let's, uh, let's discuss things, but let's not be quick to judge. Hey, these were awesome questions. Thank you guys for sending them in. I have a few more in my inbox, but I want to invite you keep sending in uh, any sort of interesting podcast direction, question to consider, uh, everything from... I don't know, any area of life. could be a Bible study question. It could be a politics question, a culture question, a college majors question, whatever you think would be interesting. I look forward to hearing from you. The number for the podcast is 315-566-0056. Text that number. The message goes straight to my inbox labeled for the podcast, and I will catch you next time. Peace.